Revelation 18. We are moving towards the end. And here's what I want to tell you, that we're at the point where this is the last chapter that focuses completely on judgment. We are moving to the chapters that focus on victory. And so that's a good turning point. This is the last chapter that's really going to focus on the evil that's going to come and the evil that's going to be destroyed. There'll be pieces of it in the ones that come ahead, but they'll be around the marriage supper of the Lamb and the worship of the saints and the new creation and the millennial reign and all those great things I'm going to let Alan explain to you. All right? Alan is so thankful that I let him have the beast a few weeks ago and the millennial reign in a couple of weeks. But all those victory things we we see. And so this summer is going to be a good time, After even next week, but this summer is going to be a great time to talk about the victory that comes. Um, Actually, Sunday morning, we're going to spend some time, uh, uh, as a memorial day, we're going to be talking about what happens when we pass on, what happens when we die, and about the hope of heaven that we have. And, uh, And so the next few weeks, you're going to spend some extended time talking about that. But chapter 18 is specifically a chapter that chronicles the demise of Babylon finally. And it's a chapter that is amazing when you think about the scope of what it's saying. What's interesting to me, and y'all know me, I've gone through almost the entire book of Revelation, y'all know I'm not one of these guys that says, we, you know, that puts a chart out and says, here where we are on the chart. But it is interesting to me that many of the things that are mentioned in here would have taken years or months to see happen in the past because of the isolation of the world. I mean by that, you couldn't get from America to Africa very fast. You couldn't get information from America to Africa very fast. Where now you can get it instantaneously. What several decades ago or even years ago couldn't have been seen happening in months, now could happen almost instantaneously. For instance, it's not out of the question for us to imagine the Greek government making a terrible financial decision and the American economy collapsing almost simultaneously. Right? It's not out there for us to think that a major incident happens in China and markets all over the world suddenly collapse. That's not out of the question for us anymore. I, I did a study on... Um, the world's always been connected, it's just taken longer to connect. Uh, I, I did a study on Sao Paulo, Brazil uh, once, and uh, I found out that Sao Paulo in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was a city about the size of Jackson, Tennessee. And now has between 27 and 30 million people living in it. That's pretty rapid growth. I don't know how you calculate that. From 100,000 to 30 million in 100 years is rapid growth. And they really started their first wave of growth in the 1910s, 1920s, because they were one of the best coffee producers in the world. And in 1929, something happened in New York City Every time I say New York City, I feel like I'm the guy on that uh, Pace Picante song. New York City. I just sound like I sound like that because I'm just from the South. 
something happened in New York, up there in the big town of New York, something happened. The stock market crashed, right? Black Monday. Well, it didn't happen instantaneously, but over the next year, the economy in Sao Paulo fell. Now, the difference is, today, if the crash there affected them, it would affect it immediately. Well, in a minute, we're going to read about the fall of the worldwide system gathered together against God happening in a day and then in an hour. That's something people couldn't fathom a hundred years ago. And yet for us, it seems like it could be part of tomorrow. Chapter 18. After this, again, that doesn't necessarily mean chronologically. It just means the next thing that I saw. It doesn't mean that these events are are in A, B, C, D, E, straight across. It just means that's the next thing that I saw. After this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven. And the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He cried in a mighty voice, It has fallen! Babylon the great has fallen. Reminds me of uh, Wizard of Oz. The witch is dead. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her excessive luxury. Who is the her she's talking about here? We're talking about Babylon, right? Well, now, who was Babylon in the previous chapter? The previous chapter was the great harlot, the great whore, the great prostitute. And so what you have here is saying that the people of the world who have bought in to this system that is organized against God is going to experience the wrath of God in judgment. And what we see is He's going to put out great retribution on the land. What we see is He's going to judge them because of the things that were happening there. It says, after these things, the new vision begins. Another angel comes from heaven having great authority that illumines the earth. All three of those remind us of the authority and the presence of this angel, of the might of this angel, of the one delivering the message. This angel came from the very presence of God. It is great authority and it radiates the glory of God on the earth. The earth is literally lit up by this angel that comes from God. And then we have this statement that says, Babylon the great is fallen. Fallen. It's almost like they have to say it again in order for you to truly get what he's saying. It's fallen. Babylon has fallen. Sometimes the most exciting news you repeat yourself you don't mean to. In a few weeks, I'm going to have a couple of phone calls to make. Uh, like a, around seven weeks from now when the baby finally comes, I'm going to have some people to call. And, and I found myself in the past going, it's a boy, it's a boy, right? You just, it's a girl, it's a girl, you know? Just, you say it over. She's come, she's here. You know, you, you say it. This is the most exciting news that you could ever announce from the angel of the Lord. Babylon, the system, the people who have set themselves up against God 
have been defeated. Now here's what I love about that. That phrase is in the past tense. And if you remember, we've talked about this a few times. God is the only one who is able to talk about the future as if it's already happened. God's the only one that's able to say about the future, it has happened. And so what this tells us is, it is signed, it is sealed, it is delivered, it is sure, it has fallen. It is a settled reality. A settled reality that the people that oppose God will be defeated. It tells us that all that is left is that it is a dwelling place of demons, a prison of foul, unclean spirits, a cage for unclean and hated birds. The proud has been laid out low. Absolute desolation and destruction is mighty Babylon's end. Once her streets teemed with people, once she thrived with activity, once she thought she held the future in her hands, now only evil and unclean spirits occupy. And then it says that the reason this happened is because they all drunk the wine of the fornication of the great prostitute. The picture that it gives is literally that the entire world who are not believers in Jesus Christ are people who are walking around in a drunken stupor completely unaware of what they're doing. The idea is that they have been intoxicated by her and they're being controlled by her. It says that the kings in particular were enticed by her, seduced by her, entrapped by her in their desire for more. And that the inhabitants, the merchants, those people that were around in verse 3, the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy. And it tells us they've grown wealthy because of the stuff that's there. But the stuff was never enough. Gold was more important than God. Silver was more important than the Savior. Money, money, money captivated their heart more than their Master. I was uh, warming up a snack for Luke in the uh, kitchen last night. And he came up, and I don't even remember what I was putting in the, the microwave oven. He came up to me and he said, Dad, why do people always want more money? And I said, well, Luke, why do you always want more money? He said, well, because I guess I want more stuff. And I said, well, that's why people want more money, is because they want more stuff. And he said, well, why do they want more stuff? I did not want to get into the theology of Revelation chapter 18 and the intoxication of the great prostitute that had happened with my five-year-old. So I just said, Luke, because they think that's what will make them happy. And what happens here is these people have put everything they've got into this system that has set itself against the Lord. I mean, the book of Revelation continually heightens their commitment. They get the mark of the beast. They bow down and worship the beast. They blaspheme God even when they see Him judging them. It's like, it's like a gambler who keeps doubling down even when he sees the losing streak is there. And at the end of the day, it's over. 
They've put everything they've got into this. They put every hope they've got into this. It is on a grand scale like those who invest everything they have in a stock or a business or a sports team or an individual or a relationship only to see that thing go south. This is that on the macro level, the big picture level. It tells us that these merchants have grown wealthy from her excessive luxury. Now we're going to see in a minute what happens to those merchants, and he's going to give names. But the point to see here is the people who have given their hearts and their lives and their souls to this way of life are going to realize there's no escape. Verse 4, though, is a word to those of us that are believers. I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Another voice, probably another angel, says to come out. It's an imperative word. My people, unless you want to share in her sins and receive her judgment. The idea here is that if you are a believer of the Lord, you are going to want to run to the Lord. You're wanting to get to escape from that. Romans 12.2 says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, not conformed to the world. He says that for those of us that are believers, we don't want to be a part of this because our sins have been forgiven. But their sins are piled up to heaven and God remembers. One of the most brilliant promises in all of Scripture is Isaiah 43.25. He says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I love how some more modern translations put that. Um, I remember your sins no more. It doesn't use the word forget. Because in our minds, the word forget has this idea that we just wipe it out and we never have to deal with it again. God, it seems, continually chooses to no longer remember our sins because of what Jesus Christ has done. He removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. But the idea is that God continually chooses not to remember our sins, which is slightly different than I just forgot about it. There's a difference between something you forgot and something you choose not to remember. Right? Forgot means what? Slip my mind or I don't... You just kind of let it go. I choose not to remember... That's usually not in a good way with us. I chose not to remember my appointment with you is not good. Okay? I chose not to remember to take my medicine is not good. God chooses not to remember. He says with these others though, think about this, their sins have piled to the heavens and God remembers every crime. Where Babylon was located, yes. Most commentators would say, though, Miss Rachel, that Babylon in Revelation is referring directly to Rome. Because the Babylon of that day would have been Rome. 
And so Babylon in the Old Testament and the New Testament came to symbolize that group or that government or that people that set themselves up against God most directly. In the Old Testament, that is definitely Babylon. In the New Testament, that's Rome or the people of Rome, especially as you get later in the book of New Testament. And so um, there are some commentators that say that the city of Babylon will be rebuilt in the exact spot and that that's what's being talked about here. I think a better interpretation of it is that Babylon here, because of the global impact it has, is representative of all of those in the world system that set themselves against God. And what we have by the end of the book of Revelation is everyone that is not a part of the family of God is a part of setting themselves against God. Um, and so, it, it, it physically, geographically, when Babylon was on the earth, it would have been in uh, Persia, which became Iraq. Um, I think this is symbolically talking about the entire system of the world that have set themselves against God. And so the difference in my interpretation and what some commentators would do here is I I think it's a global crumbling instead of a local crumbling. I think it's the global system, which is why I said... and, And I think part of the reason... Now, not all, but some commentators interpreted it as a specific city for many, many years is because they couldn't imagine a global crumbling. Where today, with the way we're interconnected, I mean, there are some scary scenarios out there of a wire getting cut in Washington, D.C. in a specific computer, or a virus being sent to a certain computer in Washington, D.C. shuts down the entire economic system. Now, I don't think God's sending a virus to a computer in Washington, D.C. I'm just saying that we're so connected that the collapse in one place could be monumental elsewhere. Was it here that I talked about if something happened in China? Was that this? I'm getting older. And so I can't remember what I talked about in the 4 o'clock and the 6 o'clock. I've only talked about it once, but it was here. So y'all just remember that because that would have been a good illustration here. Um, And so that's what I think. I think it's a global kind of understanding. Is that what you think it is, Ms. Carroll? Because several commentators don't know either. I think that this is a preemptive reminder to us to be in the world, but not of it. Don't be captured by it. Because, like you said, if there are believers in the midst of the city as it's destroyed, he's not going to say, hey, everybody come out, I've got some more destruction to do. It's destroyed. And so I think he's saying, listen, that's why he keeps, we have to remember, he's writing this to a group of people that were in a system of government that were, persecuting them. And so he's saying, don't buy into their system. Don't get into that. This is their end. Remember, come out. Be apart from them. Because this is the destruction that's coming. It would be really good if John would have said, let me, let me write down a complimentary thing that will explain this to you in the 21st century. Right? But we don't have it. And so we'll have to live with wonder at points. The point for us is, we need to be constantly aware at how captivated we are by our own culture instead of God's kingdom. We need to be constantly aware how much we are a part of our own culture instead of God's kingdom. And that's not just because we live in a bad culture. Sometimes living in a good culture can be worse about that than living in a bad culture. 
we've talked about this, but people in the Sudan don't have a dis- whether or not they've been influenced much by their culture. They're either for Christ or they're Muslim. There's, you know, and if you're for Christ, you may be dead. There, there's not a lot of that wiggle room. In America, it'd be pretty easy to still be captured by our culture, living like every other unbeliever in America, and wonder whether we've been captivated by them or we're following God's kingdom. That's another subject another day. Now, where was I? Verse 6. We've gotten five verses in 40 minutes. We've got five minutes to cover the last 18. Here we go. So he says, it'll go more quickly after this, I promise. He says, so I'm going to pay her back. But this is what's interesting. It says in verse 6 that he's going to pay her back double. She's going to receive back. This culture, this government, this civilization, this economic, is going to receive back from the Lord double what she has doled out. So he's saying that to people that are getting beaten for their faith. He's saying, don't worry, vindication is coming. She's going to get it double. Pay her back the way she also paid and double it according to her works in the cup in which she mixed. It's this classic literature where someone drinks the poison that they concocted. And then he talks about this luxury. And I'll be honest, verse 7 is one of those verses that scares me a little bit as an American believer. Not about my salvation, not about my faith, but just the way that we have equated in America luxurious living and Christianity. As much as she glorified herself and lived luxury, give her that much torment and grief. So the idea here is, the more luxuriously you live, the harder it's going to be. Because she says in her heart, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, I will never see grief. You see the defiance there. I am completely self-reliant. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody or anything. And the only way, if I've got problems, I just figure it out and I work harder and I take care of it. Pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I keep going forward. Even as the judgment of God is coming, she said, I'm still alright. I don't need anybody. I'll never see grief. Isn't it good that nations always declare that they'll never fall? They recklessly pursue things against the Lord. And it'll never happen to us. Because we all know that civilizations are the same today as they have been for all of history, right? The Roman Empire never failed, did it? No, it did. Babylonian Empire fell. Byzantine fell. Greek fell. And all of those at some point in history were the unconquerable kingdom. God says that any nation, any country, any group, any people that declares they're fine on their own will receive judgment from the Lord. Verse 9. I'm going to show you a quick contrast. We're going to read through most of these verses quickly. Quick contrast and then we're going to be done. The world goes into mourning. What we have coming is like the scene from a funeral that would have happened in their day. Funeral in our day, what happens once someone is... We've had the funeral service and then we travel to the 
graveside generally, and we travel to the graveside, what we do is we uh, get behind the hearse if you're in that processional, and you drive to the graveside. At least here, people get off on the side of the road, stop, and let the hearse pass, right? Well, in Jewish days, in the days of Jesus, in the days of Revelation, they didn't have hearses. I know that's a shock. They carried the deceased in their coverings through town. And they would have professional mourners. Now, doesn't that sound like a pleasant job? Your job is to go to every funeral in town and get paid to mourn. And they would line the streets, and as the body left, they would sing funeral songs for the deceased. What we have in Revelation 18 is the funeral song for the nations that have set themselves against God. The kings of the earth who had committed sexual immorality and lived luxuriously with her will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth will get together and weep for her. These merchants that were made rich by her because no one buys their stuff anymore. Listen, when the end of the world is happening, people don't care as much about their gold bracelets. When cities are crumbling, people don't care whether they got on the latest fashion. All of these things that are mentioned here are luxurious items. Gold. Silver, precious stones, pearls. They don't care whether they got their pearl necklace on when buildings are falling on around them. Fine fabrics of linen and purple and silk and scarlet. Nobody's running to Ann Taylor Loft to get the latest stuff. All kinds of fragrant wood products. Objects of ivory, wood, brass, iron, marble. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine wheat flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriage, and human bodies and souls. Now those last two kind of seem weird. I mean, why are you comparing cinnamon with a human soul? But the idea is that these people have marketed and lived in the marketplace so long that they have begun to sell and exchange People, and people have given their hearts and souls for the pursuit of these things. The fruit you craved has left you. All your splendid and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand far off in the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, because in a single hour such fabulous wealth was destroyed. Then all the transportation's gone too. Nobody's out buying new cars when Armageddon hits. Although that might be a good time to get zero down. No payments for six months, right? You got to figure Armageddon's going on. I got six months. Let me drive around a little bit. I don't imagine that's how it's going to happen. But they threw dust on their heads, sound of mourning, and cried, Whoa, whoa, the great city, where all those ships on the sea became rich from her wealth, because in a single hour she was destroyed. Here's the contrast I want you to see. 
So the destruction of this system that has set itself against God is happening in an hour. And the world is singing funeral dirges for the destruction. What does chapter 18, verse 20 tell us the people of God ought to be doing? Rejoicing. Rejoice over her heaven, you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has done what He said He would do. So while the world is mourning, believers are rejoicing. He gives this image here at the end. This is how we know this is it. Because look at the poetic way it says that you'll never hear from this system again. In this way, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The angel takes a huge stone and throws it into a lake and says you'll never see the city again. It's like that millstone. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpers will never be heard. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found. The sound of a mill will never be heard. The light of the lamp will never shine. The voice of a groom and bride will never be heard in you again. All of this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because of the nations were deceived by your sorcery, and the blood of the prophets and saints, and all those slaughtered on the earth were found in you. The idea in this last thing was to comfort the people to whom this was originally written and to those of us who are believers today to know that at some point God's going to finish it. And it's not going to be like the boxing movies where somebody's going to get to the count of nine and this evil empire is going to rise again to wreak havoc on the believers of God. That this time, they're done. It's final and it's over. And what he says in there, and we're going to see in chapter 19, if you look and just peek at chapter 19, you still got your Bibles open, immediately there is a celebration in heaven. A major celebration in heaven, followed by a wedding, the return of Christ, and a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we just finished Revelation. We're going to take a little time to work it out. But this is it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what lies ahead. Because the truth is, we may experience tribulation. In fact, Scripture says we will experience tribulation, persecution, being outcast, being hated in this world. Jesus says when they do that, be thankful because they did it to me. But the last few chapters of this book are what God intends for us to really grasp. You may live, and He's telling these people... You may be in what feels like a literal living hell right now. But your future is an eternal heaven with the Lord. And that's what the last few chapters of Revelation are about. I'm a little jealous. Here's why I'm a little jealous. Because Alan and I talked about this, and I told Alan, I want you to finish Revelation because I don't want... He's going to be speaking several times this summer, and I don't... I didn't want y'all to have to wait till August or September to get back into it. But I'm a little jealous because I'm not going to be in here to walk with you through this. I'm going to read it and study it the same as I would. But man, ain't it going to be good? I'm preaching Sunday on heaven and I'm calling it when the perfect comes. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 it says we now see imperfectly basically. But when... The perfect comes. 
man, I look forward to that day. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I don't even remember when it was, whenever we went to Moss Wright Park on a Sunday afternoon, Brandon Friendsley looked at me and said, hey, throw me the football. I did not want to look like I couldn't throw a football to this college pitcher. So I reared back and threw the tightest spiral you have ever seen. And every morning since that, I have woken up with extreme pain from my elbow down this end. I may have torn something there. I don't know. I jammed my finger on that same day, and every morning I wake up and have to work that finger out just a little bit. You know? Not, I mean, those are minor things. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. I am all the way at 36. This is already happening to me. Don't you look forward to the day when you ain't got to worry about that stuff? That's the minor stuff, right? Now, I know I had. I look forward to when the perfect comes. That's what Revelation 19 through 22 is all about. Because here's the truth. And I'm going to open up a can of worms that we don't have time to go into tonight. Even those that have passed away right now aren't where the perfect comes. Because Scripture says the perfect only fully comes. Now, they're with Jesus. Scripture promises they're with the Lord. But where they are is not where they will be. Because there's going to be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. The earth will look as it did when it was perfect. Can you imagine how beautiful that's going to be? I mean, we've been to places that take my breath away now. And that's on a fallen world. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in a completely recreated place? That is what it looks like when the perfect comes. That's what we're talking about over the next few weeks. All right? Y'all have a great week. We're done.